Asian Americans study twice as many hours as the average American. It's impossible to control all of the circumstances in which you are never discriminated against for something. There is this notion that Asians are smarter than everybody else. Actually, you are a racist. Even though you don't think you are a racist, you are a racist because you're participating in a racist structure. I wasn't interested in Harvard. If Harvard did not discriminate against Asian Americans, Asians would make up about 43% of Harvard's student body. Doesn't matter if you check or uncheck your box Asian or not. Doesn't matter, Harvard's gonna know what race you are because they believe that whites are the privileged race in America. They're the powerful race. Can we provide enough opportunity for the people who are less privileged? My guest today is very comfortable pushing the envelope. He's also the author of a book called An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. Kenny Shu, thank you so much for being on Valuetainment. Thank you so much, Patrick. I appreciate it. So listen, I got to tell you, your, uh, uh, your, your position and story is kind of confusing some people because it's supposed to be the other way around, yet you're challenging the envelope with the fact that Harvard is not necessarily accepting as many Asian students because their grades are way too good and they're trying to you know, balance themselves out so they can take a little bit of everybody and not necessarily the best students, but as long as they fit mm-hmm. the criteria they're open to. So I'm actually curious to go into this with you here, but prior to actually getting into some of your positions, do you mind taking a second here and sharing your background with the audience? I'm second generation. I was born in America. I was born in Maryland. My parents are Chinese immigrants. Uh, My dad was an entrepreneur, started his own small business. It was doing a little, was doing well. Then the recession hit. So we had to fold it, worked for corporate a little bit, uh, but I was always raised, you know, valuing hard work. And above all, my dad always told me, don't be lazy. And if you choose something, whatever you choose to do, Kenny, uh, do your best, try your best and be the best. So I decided um, I, uh, I went to college. I was a math major, uh, but I was always a writer. I always loved writing. I wrote fiction when I was little. Um, and this Harvard case got into the national press. And I knew this from my own experience at Harvard was obviously discriminating against Asian Americans, but I was mad about it, but I didn't think I would write a book about it until I saw that this ideology is spreading throughout the entire rest of the country and every equity program, every college, now even in businesses, people are coming up with diversity, equity, and inclusion and all I see is a penalization of the meritocratic spirit of this country that made it great. You tell me I had to write a book about it, and uh, it just came out July 13th, and it's been doing really great. And so I'm really excited to talk about that story in my book. Yeah, so why, why do you think that has happened? What's the motive behind it? Why Harvard discriminates against Asian Americans? Yes. Because Harvard, uh, they, they really want a racially, specifically a racially diverse class. So they see Asians as overrepresented, right? Because if Harvard did not discriminate against Asian Americans, Asians would make up about 43% of Harvard's student body based on merit alone, based on grades, test scores. So what they do is that they artificially lower that to about half. Asian Americans only to less than half. Asian Americans make up about 20% of Harvard's student body. Um, because Harvard wants to admit more people of diverse races, and they think it makes them more virtuous. 
Okay, so so let's go through this. So 43% would be the student body agents if it was based, based on merits, but it's not. It's currently 20%. And if we look at the, uh, based on national population, I think Asians make up 5.9% yeah. of America, give or take. Blacks are 13.4%. Hispanics are about 18 and a half. Then you got the whites who are the non-Hispanic whites are a little over 60%. Then you got a small percentage of Middle Easterns and others like myself that make up the rest of the percentage, right? So why is it, why is it, help me understand this part. Why is it that the population is only 5.9% Asian, yet based on the criteria, 43% would be in Harvard. That's Mm 5.9 to 43%. Why is that? What are the Asian families doing differently than the rest of us? They are teaching values that beget a good educational excellence. So Asian Americans study twice as many hours as the average American, right? They, they study about 15 hours a week. The average American studies about seven. Um, Asian Americans uh, tend to prioritize um, academic excellence because they have to. Uh, because you come to this country and you don't have generational wealth, you don't have privilege, you don't have social connections. How are you going to move up in society? How are you going to provide a better future for your for your kids? Well, it has to be through education because that's the great lever forward in Asian American culture. They really prioritize the valuing of of, of education, especially Chinese and, and Chinese centered um, cultures. Um, it's it's pretty much baked into you know the the Confucian system in some way, the, the ancient old tradition. Um, and, uh, and as a result, you know, and the other thing that Asians do is that they have better two-parent family structures that allow them to provide a conducive environment for academic excellence. Uh, because you can have a, you know, uh, uh, you don't, your, your parent can pay more attention to the child and that's very much valued in the culture. So that's what begets the academic excellence part. Got it. So when I was in uh, when I was in high school and yeah. we would have friends who were Asian and, you know, you know, uh, uh, whatever they may be, the, the students, Middle Eastern students were also doing very good in school because in Iran, it's also when you come to America, you know, they value education a lot. And to them, math, some of the math we would take in that they teach here in seventh grade, we would learn in fourth grade. It was always say, hey, I already know this stuff. I learned this stuff years ago. This is easy stuff. Why are we oh, doing yeah. this? I've done this for many, many years. But the question I'm asking you, if we can go a little bit deeper. So mm-hmm. somebody would say, well, look at that guy. That guy's the curve of the class. He's at 98% and we got to beat him because he's the 100% of the class. Oh, because he's Asians. You know, they they got genetics. They, they have the certain genes and, you know, they're smarter than everybody else. So there is this notion that Asians are smarter than everybody else. But we don't hear about the 15 hours of studying per week, which is twice as much as everybody else. So you said the uh, dual family, husband and wife, you know, mom and dad stayed together there. Great. What other values did you learn from your dad? I know you gave a couple of them to us here. Mm-hmm. You know, don't be lazy, do your best, whatever you're doing, give your best, et cetera, et cetera. What standards and expectation was it to be in the shoe family? What were some of the standards and expectations? Yeah. yeah. How do you, yeah. Um, well, how do you get to be the smartest in the class, right? You, you have to, you know, my dad and my mom and, for many Chinese American, uh, Korean American, Vietnamese American families, a lot of this is a lot of this is very similar. Um, you you have a you have a certain role in the family, right? Your role is 
you know, and I talk about this in my book, An Inconvenient Minority, your role is you need to be academically excellent. You know, you need to, to study hard. And one of this, I'll tell you, I'll give you the example of math. Okay, so you, you're given a problem set or a problem sheet, you know, at an early mm-hmm. age, and maybe you need to memorize a multiplication table and you do problems. Um, in, in our family, you know, if you didn't do it right, um, nobody's going to punish you, okay, or anything like that. But you just got to keep doing it until you get it right. You know, you got to keep doing it until you get it right. You got to practice. You got to push forward. Um, Asian Americans really believe that math is just a sport of, it's just a sport of practice and practice and continuing to do things over and over again. It's math is not really that complicated. You know, it's funny that people like to say, oh, I'm not a math person or anything like that. Asian Americans don't really believe that. You know, you, you can't, it doesn't matter if you're not a math person. You can do math and you can achieve at a high level. My inherent interest wasn't even in math. My inherent interest was in writing. I was a writer. Fiction. I was uniquely talented at writing. And yet I was a math major in college because I was pushed from an early age to just work hard on problems, think creatively, think abstractly. Um, and to most of all, if I get stuck, to finish it, to, to get unstuck, to do, to do the best I can uh, to get it done. How did they hold you accountable? Was it... Was one of the, did one of your parents, was it involved in it? Was it something where, hey, here, let's do the math problem together or go figure it out on your own and then come and bring the homework to me? What, what style is the accountability with parents? Well, I mean, it's different styles. Um, my family, you know, was, was more hands-off for me. I did a lot of problem sets. I did, honestly, I did a lot of, I did a lot of just learning from textbooks. I just studied textbooks. I would, I would do it for, for an hour. It's like, the resources are all here. They're all there. You know, you can learn from textbooks and textbooks can teach you a lot if you actually put your nose in the textbook and actually try to learn from it. I saw a statistic in China that said the average parent spends uh, 18% of their income on kids after school program, not even private school or education, just after school program. What other ways did you have your parents invest into you to learn? Did, did they invest into tutors? Was there additional courses you took? What, what other ways did they invest into you becoming a better student? There was some enrichment. Um, I don't think the enrichment, the, the after school, like I did, I did some like after school camps. A yeah. lot of those camps were just fun, fun camps. Got it. Um, I don't think that those are the primary cause of, of, of what drove me to get better at math. I really think it was just putting my nose in a textbook and, and learning from that. What, what was the currency in your house that got your mom and dad to say yes to you? I had to be assertive. I had to be assertive. My mom and dad were a little bit different than, than, a, than a simple traditional Chinese-American parent because my dad was, you know, wanted to assimilate into this country. And in this country, you know, it's a quarterback country. You have to be assertive. You have to assert yourself. So uh, I did have to ask for what I wanted. And I had to articulate it and I had to communicate it. So that made me better as a communicator. Yeah. So, you know, the whole book, uh, what is it? Tiger, uh, 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 the battle hymn of the tiger mother. I don't know what was the name of that book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That went viral. And, you know, she got both criticism and she got a lot of uh, uh, from one side. It's like, yeah, that's pretty intense. That parents like that. And the other side is, wait, that's a, you know, new, like a sweatshop, you're working your tail off, you're expected to do so much. Oh, my God, who wants to have, Uh you know, so what do you say to the criticism of an extremely high demanding discipline expectation type of an environment to raise your kids 
where nowadays you'll read many articles saying it's better to not put that kind of expectation on your kids on how they perform because it can produce a high level of anxiety and panic attack on your kids. It's not the right way to do it. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, the the idea that today's comfort parenting, uh, today's comfort parenting is a modern liberal society uh, practice. It's not it's not practiced by all cultures. You know, the idea that you should just, you know, train your kid to you know, be special and he's special and everything like that. I don't think most parents uh, believe that in the 17th century when you're a substance farmer, right? You have kids so they can help you, so they can work on the farm, so they can help you milk the cows um, or help you with your trade, right? Um, we were in a very rich society and rich society permits indulgent parenting. Um, so my parents parented out of scarcity, not indulgence. Um, and a lot of that's what a lot of Asian parents do. They, they parent out of the mindset that there are scarce resources in the world and, and they don't really have time to waste. And one of those resources is time. So is the idea of parenting on, on the Asian side? And again, keep in mind, it's very similar to Middle Eastern. Like in my family, yeah. I, my mom, God forbid, found out how much money I have and what my net worth is. And she says, somebody told me you're worth this much money. I said, mom, it's lies. Why do you believe this stuff? You know, I'm, I'm just a regular guy. And she'll see and she'll come and see the businesses we built. And, oh, my gosh, this is all the business. And then she'll say, how come you don't have a four-year degree? When are you going to get a bachelor's <laughs> degree? You know, so in the Middle Eastern culture, either a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. You do that. Oh, yeah. You made it to the top, right? You've done above and beyond. But how do parents in the Asian community view the role they play for their kids? And is there anything of the kids on the culture that you owe back to your parents? Or is the culture more, my goal is to raise you and then you go live your life and do whatever you do. Is there anything that I get back from my kids when they become adults, independent winning? Okay, so they, they really view their role as, as helping their kids to, not, not helping their kids, but really pushing their kids to, to have value in this world, to add, to do something that adds significant value. And, and that leads to respectability, which is why you see a lot of Asian parents pushing their kids into, into these respectable careers. Doctors, engineers, lawyers, everything like that. Those are all respectable. Those have degrees. Those have credence. And the, 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 the reason why they do that is because, you know, they come here. They have no status. They have to earn their way up, you know. And what they crave for their child is for their child to have a better future than them. And future and professional careers are aligned to them with a, with a better future because it's respectable, it's high status, it's everything like that. So they will, they will pour their hearts into their child. They will pour everything they have in their child. Um, you have these children in New York, so you have these parents in New York City who are literally like these Chinese parents in New York City who literally don't even speak English, who maybe are working in a restaurant, maybe own their own place, probably making less than you know, $30,000 a year. And every penny that they have that they save, they put in their child's um, test prep. They put in their child's textbooks. You know, mm -hmm. they, they try to do some enrichment for their kid. And that, that produces results. Their, their kids grow, go up to uh, go into the gifted and talented programs in New York City. They graduate from Stuyvesant Bronx Science High School, where 90% of the kids who are on free and reduced lunch in those high schools are Asian. 
So that's the part where I was going when you said there's a little bit of in, enrichment, you know, that money the mother is saving to help in the test prep, to help them get better scores on the SATs or whatever, maybe that's pretty, pretty impressive to hear that. By the way, I know you you did not go to Harvard. You graduated from Davison College. Magna cum laude is what you graduated in, majoring in mathematics and minoring in philosophy. What mm-hmm. was your GPA in high school? How well did you do in high school? Oh, I was a, well, I mean, I, I cheated a little bit because I had a, I took a bunch of AP classes, uh, which I'm not sure if you consider cheating, but it's four point, it was like 4.4 something out of five. So at 4.4 out of five, did you apply to go to Harvard or no? No, I never applied to go to Harvard. Uh, I actually, I applied to go to Princeton. And then I think I applied to go to UPenn Wharton. I think those are the two Ivy Leagues that I applied to, but I you wasn't were not interested in going to Harvard. What? You were not interested in Harvard? I wasn't interested in Harvard. No. Why not? Be- well, I knew that they won. I knew that they were discriminating against Asians. So that there was kind of a moral principle thing there. But then I think there was also kind of, uh, I, I, I didn't like, I didn't like the culture when I toured there and everything like that. I, I never wanted to apply to all seven Ivy League colleges. That was never my intention. Got it. So you didn't like the culture, but you did go and take a look at the campus to see if you were going to like it or not. And then you applied to Princeton. Now, would you say Princeton runs a similar kind of a philosophy as Harvard to make sure they please every ethnicity as they're accepting students there, or Princeton goes on a different philosophy? No, it's the same philosophy. The Ivy Leagues have the same philosophy. There's, there's this graph in my book, An Inconvenient Minority. It has it has Asian American percentage as a percentage of student body for all seven Ivy leagues. And what happens is there's like an initial spike in the eighties. And then by the nineties, it goes down and, and, and every single Ivy league school, Asians are between like 15 and 18% of the student body, every single one. And then you see Caltech, which doesn't practice discrimination against Asian Americans and their Asian population goes from like 10% to like 40%. You got to be kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. This is this graph is in the book. So every Ivy League has the same ratio of 15 to 18. Caltech's got 40%. Yeah. How much criticism does Caltech get? Uh, for not practicing discrimination against Asian yeah. Americans? Yeah. How much critic, like how, who is, is anybody targeting Caltech's approach and calling them, you know, many different words that nowadays are used to, you know, defame the character of that university. No one's uh, really targeting Caltech right now because their reputation is so excellent. You know, their 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 school is like a sixth the size of MIT, but they they're number five in the world in terms of research papers produced in the sciences, and M- MIT is like number Unbelievable. two. Unbelievable. Yeah. Is IIT number one? Who's who's number one? Is the India I forget who's number one. Okay. So MIT is number two. Caltech, as you said, Caltech is one sixth the size of MIT, yet they're sixth in research papers. Fifth. Fifth. And they've gone up. They've gone up from 10th in the past 10 years. So so from all the research that you've done, what else have you learned? Because you know, if if we if we truly want, I like one of the things you talk about in your book, if we truly want to you know, follow the percentage that America is, which is 60% Caucasian, you know, 13.5% African-American, you got whatever the other percentages are, the MBA should have a lot more Hispanics in there. They should. <laughs> and the, the MBA, I'm There's surprised. A lot more Asians, yeah. They should have a lot more Asians in there. Why do you think the MBA lacks uh, so, uh, uh, you know, so many Asian players? 
They get very good grades. Why wouldn't NBA focus on recruiting more Asian basketball players? Because there's a difference. Well, because the NBA is a meritocracy. And that's what, by the way, produces the best product. When you have a when you have a competition, it's a true meritocracy. You get you get the best product. I don't think anybody would want the NBA to artificially reach reach for more Asians when the Asians don't deserve to be on the playing field. Let me get this straight. You're not offended that the NBA has no interest in recruiting you? No. That doesn't offend you that they they don't come and target you to make that make you their point guard? No, because I'm self-confident enough that I know that I'm competent enough that if I was treated on the basis of merit, obviously I'm not going to get the athletic. Um, I'm not going to be a professional athlete, but I know that I'm competent enough that, you know, there are other opportunities available for me. Now, if if we use the model that Ivy Leagues use, would the Ivy Leagues call the NBA racist for not being diverse enough? No, because the Ivy Leagues have a narrow definition of racism. In order for it to be racist, it has to be power plus privilege. And so they define power as white power. So if there's too many whites, it's racist. But if there are too many black Americans, it's fine. Why is that? I'm curious. Because they believe that whites are the privileged race in America. They're the powerful race. So it's only racist if it's the powerful who are oppressing the powerless. According to who they are the privileged race? According to critical race theorists. According to, you know, critical race theory started at Harvard Law School in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s. Yeah. Can you, t- can you tell us about the history of that? I and mean, obviously, we, we've we've had the, uh, others on that have spoken about that. Where this is kind of a uh, they're indoctrinating also in the military. I had the former Space Force commander who got fired from his position for talking about these things. But elaborate a little bit more when you say you know CRT started in the seventies with Harvard. Well, in the seventies, Derek Bell was a Harvard law professor. Was the first black professor at Harvard. He created a department called Critical Legal Studies. The purpose of critical legal studies was to investigate the way that that the 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 way that race still plays a part in so-called colorblind law is what he called it. So he, he's trying to sort of to show that our laws are still racist. That that's what he was that's what he was trying to do. And then he had a bunch of students who came in, um, Kimberly Crenshaw, Mary Matsuda, uh, Roberto Unger. Um, they they developed a a separate theory under him called critical race theory, which is which basically asserts that society in America has a privileged has privileged races and oppressed races, and our laws today still privilege the privileged races. So you, you and, don't you don't think that some of the laws in the '60s were a bit racist? No, no, no. The laws in the 60s were def- okay, were definitely racist. But here's what a critical legal studies person Please. would say. He would say, he would say the civil rights, for example, the Civil Rights Act of 1965 says the state will not discriminate on the basis of race, ethnicity, color, skin, national origin, anything like that. A critical legal studies person would look at that law and he would say that law is still racist because that law who because that what that law does is um it's 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 saying that even 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 though it says that the state should not discriminate um what it's doing is it's reifying the current structure of america where whites are still at the top and blacks are still at the bottom so 
that law is is a kind of it's a he based it's a neutral law, but it's not really a neutral law because it's still reifying the current power structure. Got it. So you know, uh, today I had a guest on last week, comedian Maz, and he said, "Well, you know, I had I was having a conversation with a friend of mine talking about what's wrong with CRT, what's wrong with teaching CRT in school." You know, we uh, don't teach the history of racism in school. We should teach the history of racism because it's not being taught right now. And why are so many people uh, worried about this? What's your biggest concern with CRT being taught in school today? Uh, It's that it's mental hijacking. You have, so you have, when you teach critical race theory, you're basically telling a person to second guess himself. Uh, so if you're a white person, your default is I'm not a racist and you aren't a racist, but a critical racist race theorist would say, actually, you are a racist, even though you don't think you are a racist, you are a racist because you're participating in a racist structure. And that the whole idea of critical race theory is to get the white person to admit that he is a racist. Once the white person admits that he's a racist, critical race theorists have all the power over that person. They can get them to do anything that they want, you know, for equity anti-racism, you got to pay reparations, everything like that. But the, but the central premise, the first concession that critical race theorists are always going to make a person say is that he is a racist. And, and that, that is a very, very damaging moral philosophy, because if you are trying to put all of your effort into convincing somebody that he's a racist, even though he's not a racist, um, you're, you're going to spend a lot of, a lot of energy um, basically deflating that person's self-confidence and destroying their, their belief and their moral goodness in themselves. Do you think bad ideas can permanently win? Permanently? Yeah. No. Tell me why. I, because, well, because, there's, because we have a cycle of history. Um, there's, a, there's a great quote. Uh, I forget who said it, but he said, um, hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Weak men make hard times. It's a cycle of history, right? And, and right now we're in good times, but we're producing weak men. And the critical race theory is one of those theories that is producing weak men because it is getting a person to second guess, destroys self-confidence, destroys ego. That's the whole point of a critical race theory. So let's just say this continues. Let's just yeah. say this continues and this prophecy goes, okay? Yeah. Give me the sequence. First comes the CRT, the white man agrees they are. What comes next and then what happens at the end? If we know hard times produce tough leaders, tough leaders produce good times, good times produce weak leaders, weak leaders produce tough times. If we know that's the formula, how does this go? Walk through, walk us through the sequencing and how it ends. Okay, well, somebody told me a, a, a conservative scholar a very famous conservative scholar once told me that critical race theory's object- objective, obviously they want to destroy white people, but after that, they want to destroy black men because the reason why they want to destroy black men is because black men still subscribe to this, you know, sort of masculinity ideal um, that prevents that. Um, and this individualism, this sort of rugged individualism that critical race theorists hate. So, they're, they're, they're not Kate. They don't want to live with, um, with white people. But then after that, they do, they want to destroy the whole concept of an individual centered masculinity in itself. And, uh, and, and that's, that's what I think is going to happen. You know, Why? once they go after the whites, once they successfully convince whites that they're racist, 
They're going to go after the truly individual, individualistic, free-spirited Black men in this country, and they're going to convince them that they are perpetuating something awful. Why, though? What's the outcome? What's the ultimate outcome? Say they get everything they want. What's the ultimate outcome? The ultimate outcome is collectivization under identity politics, where the, where the winners are the people who, who claim that they represent the so-called identity group. So if you're the what we're what we're what we're going to what we're going to in our culture right now we're going from a culture where merit advances people and merit is rewarded we're to towards a culture where victimhood is rewarded where self victimhood is rewarded okay so if you are um the people who will win in this in a critical race theory dominated society are the people uh like Kimberly Crenshaw the critical race theorists who claim i stand for black people and who are, and I, I stand for Asian people. You know, I am the leader of this of this Asian related group. Give me, give my nonprofit the money. And, and you see this already. After Stop Asian Hate happened, after Stop Asian Hate happened, billions of dollars went to so-called nonprofits that advocated for Asian American causes. But there they did not, those Asian American causes did not go to actual Asian American communities. They went to the leaders. They fatten themselves, their paychecks, um, and and that's what's happening in our culture. You ever been discriminated? You ever felt it? Like if if like if I tell you mine, you know, in the Armenian community, it's you you call the fob or a fob, you know, fresh off the boat, or you know, a bunch of these things that I've been called. I was in the army. I told my drill sergeant. He says, "What's your first name?" Private. I said, "Patrick." He says, "You don't like look like a Patrick. You look like a Mohammed." And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I've been called that before, but I'm a Patrick. You know, so did they change your name? I've had certain things that I've experienced, but to me, it's, you know, it was very normal when I was coming up with that. It's very normal for somebody to call you full when you're coming up. Did you experience discrimination yourself? Okay, we, this is, this is another point of my book and also with my larger advocacy. We're all discriminated against. We're always, people are always discriminated. Okay. When you're going to a cashier or, or a cash register and you're going to aisle either aisle seven or aisle eight, and one cash register is, um, you know, a grumpy looking person who just got a bad hair day and another cash register is an attractive woman, you know, who are you going to go to or who are you more likely to go? You're always discriminating. So um, th- th- that's the thing about our culture. Like I was discriminated against um, in, in the book. For, for goodness sakes, in the, in the book publishing process, because, you know, I wasn't a household name, but I was always also discriminated for, like, my Asian-ness helped me in getting the contract for my book as well. It's impossible to control all of the circumstances in which you are never discriminated against for something. Um, and so this is, this is part of the, the advocacy that I'm showing, is that we're always discriminating yeah. Um, but what we can do is we can try to treat people more meritocratically. You know, some people may disagree with you and they may say the grumpy old man will make for a better conversation and a better story than the drag. <laughs> but we know which one you're going to go to. But let's go back to that. So right. I asked you a question about the NBA and he said, listen, it's because they're going to go after, you know, whatever the, you know, meritocracy. You got to get the guy that's going to outperform the other one. And, you know, so a guy like me who's six, five with a six inch vertical leap. Is probably not a good, uh, you know, uh, quality of guy to be in the NBA. But go to NHL. If you go to the NHL, what percent of it? And NBA, I think, is 76 percent African American. 
NHL is more like 95% Caucasian. How come the CRT community or the Harvard community cannot go? How come you don't hear any uh, pushback with NHL? Well, I'm hearing a bit of pushback. I read in a a recent Washington Post article, um, you know, complained about the whiteness of the NHL players, no doubt. But I think, you know, sports fans largely respect meritocracy. I think this is like why the reason why and the NHL hasn't been the subject of as huge of a pushback as, say, um, you know, the political sphere is. Because we largely respect the fact, we largely respect the system that produces and then rewards the best athletes. I agree with you. I'm just wondering how come NHL hasn't gotten anything. Sometimes I wonder because they're worried because these NHL guys would whoop their asses because you do not want to fight NHL players. They're <laughs> they're probably the toughest uh, athletes out of all sports. They, uh, If you've ever gone to a bar fight with an NHL player, it usually doesn't end too well for you. But now let's go back to a completely different That's true. Here's another side. So okay. uh, uh, the, 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 the skill of lying on your uh, application to be accepted into a college, right? So there is benefits to Elizabeth Warren saying, I am a Native American Indian, right? So, you know, and then they do the testing just a few years ago and it shows, I don't remember the what number was, one in 1,004, she is Native American. And, you know, it was like a, everybody was talking about it. You're not, use it to get into colleges. So does it benefit an Asian to not put themselves as Asian and put themselves as something else on the job application to be accepted to one of these Ivy League schools? No, and I'm going to set the record straight on this. Doesn't matter if you check or uncheck your box Asian or not. Doesn't matter. Harvard's going to know what race you are. The reason why is because they do data mining. They know who you are. They, they, they have consulting agencies that know everything about your, not everything, but they know a lot of things about your background, such as your race, your parents' family income, the neighborhood you grew up in, the crime rate of your neighborhood, all those kinds of things. So don't, don't, don't um, don't assume that these Harvard people don't have their data and their smarts and their wits about them. They're going to they know. Maybe you would also need to change your last name. Right. Because and you would probably also I mean, if you want to really disguise it, I mean, you could change your last name. Not everybody does it like Harvard, but Harvard's going to know your race. Unless, of course, you're uh, you're Elizabeth Warren and you come off as a perfectly white passing person, but you claim you're 132nd Cherokee. I don't think Harvard's going to know that. So maybe they'll, they'll give her the benefit of the doubt there. She's got a gift though. You got to give her, I mean, you got to give credit to her gift, her ability to, you know, convince uh, the world that she's a native American Indian because uh, that is a gift of hers, but uh, not forever. <laughs> it's true. That's why I'm saying bad ideas. You know, my ideas, bad ideas don't live forever. They just fool a, pe- fool a few people, sometimes a few million people for a few decades, and then they realize it was a shitty idea. And typically, by the time they find that it's a bad idea, it's already too late. You only got a few more years to live. My hopes are that people like us, you know, I told you off camera, I said, isn't it weird that we got a guy who's from China, second generation, you yourself, you said second generation, I think you said second generation, and Mm -hmm. you got someone here who lived in Iran 10 years, two years in Germany, and uh, uh, how do you feel about what America was founded on? What does this idea of America mean to you? Because to me, I think this is the greatest country in the world. What do you think about America and how it was founded on? America is a country that, to me, at its best, it judges you on the content of your character, not the color of your skin. That is a founding American principle. I know it wasn't articulated by Thomas Jefferson or Martin Luther uh, 
It was articulated by Martin Luther King, excuse me. Um, but it is a founding American principle. It is the principle that has made this country so great because we are such an accepting country, because we accept immigrants. And not just that we accept immigrants, but we say to them, you're not guaranteed success in this country. But if you work hard, you'll be treated on the basis of that work, not your background. That's the ideal that has made America great. It's the American dream. It's the foundation of meritocracy. And that's why America is the greatest country in the world. Why, why does that concept scare so many people? You know, why does the concept of knowing the fact that, you know, like when I was coming up, I had a 1.8 GPA, slightly lower than yours. And with a GPA like 1.8, you know, community <laughs> colleges turn you down. You know, you, you, you're not even, they, they, you know, if you just want to go to local Starbucks, they turn you down because your, your GPA is so low. So I don't have a lot of options. So I was the kid that they said, this guy's not going to amount to a lot. And, you know, a lot of my peers went to different places. Fast forward, I got out of the military. And I love what you say about military, because I think uh, I, I was looking at statistics earlier. Do you know more African-American women joined the military than African-American men? It's, it's, and it's by 8% wow. higher that more African-American women join uh, the, uh, of the, of the women in the military, 29%, I think are uh, women, African-American women of the men. I think 20% of the men are African-American in the military. It's a very high number, but you said something about, you know, sometimes you have folks who are African-American who join the military. They come out, they typically do better in their careers and their businesses because of what's taught. So I went to the military. I was somebody that wasn't, uh, projected to do something big with my life. I learned some discipline, came out, applied it in the world of business, and it kind of helped me out. But why do you think this concept of saying, yeah, but listen, Kenny, you're Asian, you're smart, you're genetics. You can't think everybody has the privileges that you have. You're able to get whatever you want because you're smarter than everybody else. Well, Patrick, you're the exception to the rule. You know, you made uh -huh. it because you are the exception. That doesn't mean everybody else can make it. What do you say when people say, you know, your exception to the rule. Most people do not have the ability to have their dreams come true in America anymore like they once used to. There are people right, that don't right. believe that exists anymore. So people are definitely born into unequal privilege in society. That's 100% that's correct. The issue at hand is not, can we make everybody who is unequally privileged or who is unequally privileged equally privileged? That would just be socialism. The issue is, can we provide enough opportunity for the people who are less privileged to be able to succeed in this country if they really desire to? And my answer to that is definitively yes. We have a lot of structures in our country. They need work, but that enable you to really uh, achieve the American dream. For example, the military, just like what you said, just like what you said. Black men and black people who join the military have higher, much higher career outcomes, business careers, they graduate higher rates of education. You know, if you build in that structure into these people's lives, and some of these people are coming from homes in which there wasn't structure, but you build in that sort of structure in a person's life, and it is going to change their life. It's going to make them uh, a lot more successful. Uh, and that's just one of the structures that we have in this country. Now, one of the structures that we have in this country that is actually hurting a lot of Black and Hispanic Americans is the welfare state, is the welfare state. This sort of no, no questions asked, we're going to give you money um, kind, of, kind of philosophy is really hurting a lot of people. Now you have people advocating for a universal basic income. We're going to give you money no matter how hard you work or anything like that. 
that instills the wrong mindset in people. So that's actually causing people to, um, to, to, to really uh, stay in the position that they're in and be incentivized to stay in the position that they're in rather than get out. Now, uh, when you say UBI, you got to be careful there because the person that talked about UBI a lot is a man who was from Taiwan, and you know his name is Andrew Yang. And some I, say, I, you know, it, it, you know, that may be a friend of yours who, you know, got that message. And as an entrepreneur, he got a, millions of people to buy into the concept of universal basic income. But you don't, yeah. you don't agree with UBI. No, no, and. and and, and here's why. One, it's going to cause inflation. We've already seen like a form of UBI be passed in during the COVID pandemic. Yeah. You know, and guess what? Food prices are like 30, 40% higher now. Gas prices are higher. Home prices are higher. And that, that's causing inflation. So inflation is going to be higher. But forget just the economics of it. Think about the, 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 the disincentivization of personal responsibility that UBI creates. Uh, Kenny, your parents left China to come here. It's not your parents. Your grandparents left China to come here, second generation. Uh, or do your parents? Who, who, who left China to come here? Parents or grandparents? My parents. Your parents. Why did they? What was their reasoning to leave China to come to America? Because my dad, he, was, he studied at Fudan University. Um, you know, back in, back in the day, China was just opening up, but it was poor. It was poor. It did not have prosperity. America had a lot of prosperity, and America had a lot of freedom. My dad was actually politically involved, um, not at like the Communist Party level. He was never recruited for that. But he, he, he for example, was like a hall, um, was like a class leader, like class president, that kind of thing. He was always an outspoken person. And he realized you become a little too outspoken in, you know, China. Not, not so, not so good. Not so good. So he, he valued both America's prosperity and America's penchant for freedom. Do you guys still have family in China that your parents communicate with or no? We do. We do. We do. What, we, have, what, we have a lot of family there. Yeah. What, what do they say about the conditions in China today? Are they supportive of it? Are they saying, well, look, guys, it's not the same thing as it was when you left, when they talked to your dad. It's changed a lot. It's a much better place. What is their impression of what China's like today? So China is a lot better. Uh, there's, there, China, by and large, you can't deny China has improved middle-class life for a lot of their citizens in massive, massive ways. Now, did they do it through cheating? Did they do it through intellectual property stealing of American things? Uh, yeah, to some extent. But also, they did open up their economy. You know, their economy was basically Maoist. You know, Maoism, a, a sort of forced agrarianism where people had to redistribute wealth is not exactly the best way to create prosperity. But when Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s opened China up and said, okay, we're going to allow manufacturing, we're going to allow um, foreign trade, international trade. Um, and he came up with capitalism with Chinese characteristics, which is what it's called there. Uh, yeah, the country did experience you know, great prosperity. So it is doing a lot better. You know, in Shanghai right now, it's more expensive. An apartment in Shanghai is more expensive than an apartment in New York. Would you, would you go back and live in China if you could? No, no. Why not? I, I was... The one, the funny thing is, I look like a Chinese American here in America. But if I went to China, I wouldn't even have to speak. People would know I'm American. Why is that? Because of my walk, because of my teeth, because um, of of my cadence. It's 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 a feeling. It's a feeling. Uh, this is this is something that people don't understand about America. They think that everybody who comes to America just represents their home country. No, we actually, 
you know, if you live in America long enough, you were born here, you were raised here. In in many ways, you you become an American. Uh, are you are you someone that's worried about the direction China is going right now and the amount of concentration they have in America today? Uh, like the amount of like influence and poor foreign influence they have in America. Sure, sure. Of course, I'm worried about their. I'm worried about foreign influence in America in general. You know, in China, to the extent that they have spies, intelligence in America, you know, that obviously needs to be shut out. Um, particularly with regards to currency manipulation, trade, everything like that. I think that, that that needs to be a policy that's handled by better experts than me on that. So what's what's long-term aspirations for someone like you? What, what, what do you want to do next? I know you are working with uh, Young Americans Foundation. You're uh, uh, serving currently at, as uh, their development officer. I know you're writing books that are getting the attentions of a lot of people. What What are your long-term aspirations? Well, I left with Young America's Foundation. I love Young America's Foundation, by the way. But I, I did come to serve. I was recruited as president of Colorist United, which is behind me right here, where we advocate for a race-blind America. Race-blind America. You know, uh, colorusunited.org. And we're basically doing institutional guerrilla warfare, Patrick, because so many of these institutions have resorted to treating people on the basis of identities that are, practically speaking, um, uh, collectivist and irrelevant to them. Um, so if your listeners really agree with you know the subject of what I'm talking about and how we can fight for a truly race-blind America, you should go to colorrestunited.org. But that's really what I am and and sign our petition uh, because that's that's really what I'm working on, working on creating a more just and more meritocratic society. We're going to put the link below for people to go to your website uh, and for people to be able to find you as well, whether it's Twitter or, on Inst- or Instagram, we'll put those as well. Uh, also, the link to your Inconvenient Truth. Do you run a podcast, by the way? Do you have a podcast or a YouTube channel that you run? Inconvenient Minority with Kenny Shu, where I tackle race, identity, and culture. I've had James Lindsay, Chris Rufo on board. Uh, Heather McDonald is one person who I correspond regularly with, who I have on the podcast. So just search Inconvenient Minority with Kenny Shu. You can find it wherever podcasts are found. I got a, I got a recommendation for you for someone to interview. His name is Lucian yeah. Truscott. Lucian Truscott. Lucian. Lucian Truscott. If you Google him, he is this great, great, great uh, grandson of Thomas Jefferson. And I think I would love to see you interview him. It would be very entertaining. And if you don't know who he is, if you Google his name on, if you search his name on YouTube, you'll see an interview with him and I. And after about one minute, you'll know why I'm recommending you to sit down with him. I think it'll be entertaining. I think people will love it. But I think the chance yeah. of him agreeing for an interview with you is less than one-tenth of a percent. So, <laughs> hey, buddy, uh, uh, very excited about what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. It's very necessary. The The... The concept of bringing awareness to this topic from the angle that you're taking it and having the moral authority to share with your background is extremely helpful, gets a, a lot of us thinking. But uh, it's been very nice to have you on here on Valuetainment. Absolutely, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Take care. What do you have to say about what he said, by the way? What are your thoughts? I mean, he had a lot of things to say. Pretty eloquent uh, speaker. So comment below. I'm curious. If you enjoyed it, put a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. I got two other interviews I want you to watch if you enjoyed this. One of them is not an interview, a video I did a few years ago titled Every University's Worst Nightmare. If you've never seen it, click over here. And the other one is with the former Space Force commander who got fired because he shared what's really taking place in a military, U.S. military, similar to what Kenny is saying taking place with Ivy League schools. Having said that, enjoy. Take care, everybody.